Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. It's been a relatively quiet week at the court, but there are a few developments that are worth briefly mentioning uh, before we dive into this week's very special episode. So, GC, what's been going on? So besides court news, we have a little SCOTUS 101 news. We have put together an audience survey, a link to which you'll find in the description and on our Twitter page, uh, which you can also find by going to heritage.org slash SCOTUS 101 survey. And that has some questions for you, our audience, uh, to help us improve the podcast. So feel free to fill it out. Uh, we would appreciate it. Let us know what you want to hear. Uh, and, you know, please be kind. <laughs> <laughs> to me. You don't have to be kind to Zach. <laughs> Story of my life. <laughs> well, on to court news. You may recall that in December, the Supreme Court held in Whole Women's Health versus Jackson that plaintiffs may be able to challenge Texas's SB8 law. That law prohibits abortions after the baby develops a heartbeat, but it delegated enforcement exclusively to private parties. The court didn't decide the merits. It only decided whether there were any government officials that the plaintiffs could sue to get an injunction. The court said that the only officials who might properly be defendants are state medical licensing officials because SB8 seemed to give them the authority to deny licenses to abortion providers that violate the law. But as the court noted in its opinion, that question is ultimately one of Texas law. So when the case went back down to the Fifth Circuit, that court certified the state law question to the Texas Supreme Court. And if you aren't familiar, certifying a question is a fairly common process uh, in lower federal courts uh, because federal courts aren't the final authorities on state law. Often, federal appellate courts will ask a state's Supreme Court what that state's law means. This is an important federalism mechanism, and it's a good thing, in my view, uh, that the Fifth Circuit used it here in this very important case. Yeah, absolutely. So the Texas Supreme Court has now decided that question, and it said that licensing officials have no authority directly or indirectly to enforce SB8. So what does that mean for SB8? Well, likely the existing federal SB8 lawsuit is dead on arrival unless the plaintiffs can find someone else to sue that they haven't thought of yet and can clear all the hurdles from Whole Women's Health. That seems hard because they sued a lot of people. They sued <laughs> a lot of people. Uh, or if one of the justices decides later to switch sides, which is probably also unlikely. But the broader fight over SB8 is not over. There is a case in the Texas state courts claiming that the law violates the state constitution. The court also released an opinion uh, this last week. It's in the case of Wooden versus United States. The issue here involved whether a district court had to impose a 15-year mandatory minimum sentence under the Armed Career Criminal Act, which is commonly referred to as ACCA. Now, under ACCA, when someone is found guilty of being a felon in possession of a firearm in violation of 18 U.S.C. 922G, if you ever hear of a 922G case, that's what it means, uh, that person faces a minimum of 15 years imprisonment if he has three prior convictions for violent felonies that were, quote, committed on occasions different from one another. So in this case, William Dell Wooden had 10 prior burglary convictions, and he argued that those convictions did not arise from occasions that were different from one another. 
Now, the facts of the case are kind of amusing. Back in 1997, he and three friends broke into a mini storage unit, and they essentially hopped, they crushed the wall in between different storage units and hopped from one to another, hence the 10 burglary convictions. This is a law school hypothetical exam. A hundred percent. This seems like something you see on cops <laughs> when the police come up to it. So it's in some sense, a humorous case, uh, I guess, the facts here. But the consequences are very serious. Uh, he was facing 15 years imprisonment. And the lower federal courts who considered his case said that these burglaries did occur on different occasions. And so the court had to impose the 15-year mandatory minimum. But the U.S. Supreme Court disagreed with those lower federal courts, and they reversed. Uh, Justice Kagan wrote the opinion, and she explained that in her view, in the court's view, the ordinary meaning of the word occasion compels this result. She said, Wooden's one after another after another burglary of 10 units in a single storage facility occurred on one occasion under a natural construction of that term and is consistent with the reason that term became part of ACA. All of the justices agreed with the outcome of this case, but Justices Thomas, Alito, and Barrett didn't join one particular part of Kagan's opinion, and Justice Gorsuch concurred in the result only. Now, I think one concurrence out of this case is worth mentioning along with Justice Gorsuch's dissent. Justice Kavanaugh's brief concurrence is worth mentioning. Uh, he wrote to address a few points in Justice Gorsuch's very thoughtful concurrence and said that he thought that Justice Gorsuch's concern about fair notice in criminal laws could better be addressed by assuming that federal criminal laws contain a mens rea. Now, Justice Gorsuch, while he agreed with the outcome of the case, he took a slightly different view. And while he was concerned about fair notice requirements and unclear federal criminal laws, he suggested that these issues could best be addressed through a reaffirmation of the rule of lenity. He said it's a new name of an old idea, the notion that penal laws should be construed strictly and that ambiguities in those laws should be resolved in favor of the accused. Well, today we have a special episode all about Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson's record, judicial philosophy, and nomination. We are pleased to be joined by three panelists today. First is John Malcolm. Uh, he's our boss, so whatever he says goes. Uh, he serves as the vice president for the Institute of Constitutional Government, and he's the director of the Mies Center uh, here at the Heritage Foundation. We are also joined by returning guests Carrie Severino and Ed Whalen. Kerry is the president of the Judicial Crisis Network and co-author with Molly Hemingway of an excellent book on Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation called Justice on Trial. She is a former law clerk to two superstars, Judge David Sentel and Justice Clarence Thomas. And last but certainly not least is Ed Whalen. Ed is the former president and is now a distinguished senior fellow in the Antonin Scalia Chair in Constitutional Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He, too, clerked for two superstar judges, Judge J. Clifford Wallace and Justice Antonin Scalia. Ed, too, is an author, and he has written several books about Justice Scalia's life, faith, and jurisprudence, which he and his co-authors have previously discussed on this show. He is perhaps best known, though, for his daily blog post at National Review's Bench Memos. Well, we are packed into the studio like sardines today to discuss Judge Jackson's nomination. And I wanted to start off, we're going to hear a lot in this next week about Judge Jackson's judicial philosophy. So um, maybe, Ed, you can start with what is a judicial philosophy? What does that mean when we hear politicians talk about that? 
Well, the term judicial philosophy uh, captures a nominee's basic approach to the uh, core task of interpreting the Constitution and federal statutes. Uh, does the uh, candidate uh, embrace, say, principles of originalism and textualism that constrain uh, how to go about uh, interpreting those laws? Or does a candidate have a freewheeling uh, resort to a whole uh, you know, mix of things that enables the, the, um, the candidate to decide that the law means whatever he or she wants? Um, arguably, there's some other alternatives, but that's the basic divide. I mean, you have living constitutionalism on the left, which is basically uh, an, an, an excuse uh, for imposing your own moral or policy preferences in the name of the Constitution. And you have uh, originalism uh, among legal conservatives, which uh, you know aims to set forth a methodology that you can say, hey, this is or is not a, a sound exercise of originalism. How could one ever say that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, wasn't faithful to living constitutionalism when, 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 when the, the approach is, is so uh, open-ended that um, you know, it, it means whatever she wants it to mean? Uh, so that, that's the that's the basic uh, you know question here, and what we've had, if I may, over the last uh, few decades is is a decisive shift in the confirmation process from a model of deference to the president uh, to a, to a model that focuses on judicial philosophy. And just as Democrats have opposed uh, uh, nominees of Republican presidents based on judicial philosophy, it's entirely legitimate for uh, Senate Republicans uh, to do so to uh, Joe Biden's uh, nominee. Well, so far, Judge Jackson has avoided questions uh, about her judicial philosophy when she was nominated for the lower federal courts. Does anything stand out from her recent Senate questionnaire uh, that she submitted? And I'll open that to uh, to anyone. Well, I think the most disturbing thing here is that she she seems to be trying to claim that she has no judicial philosophy, which, you know, there's there's two different directions that could be pointing. One is she really just is singularly unreflective on how to interpret the Constitution. When Senator Cruz asked her during her last hearing whether she believed in the living Constitution, she didn't say yes or no. She just basically said, I haven't really thought about it. It hasn't, it hasn't come across my desk to interpret the Constitution yet, so I haven't thought about it. That's something I would hope you, you would have thought about by the time you finished con law class in, in law school, right. let alone eight years in the federal bench and now be on the appellate court. So that's really concerning. So either she really hasn't thought about this or she wasn't fully being candid to the committee, and, and neither of those is a great option. And then in response to questions from Senator Grassley, she clarified, because he asked you know, how, about specifically originalism, and she basically claimed that, well, I, I can't really talk about that because I'm bound by Supreme Court precedent as to how to interpret the Constitution. I think that would probably be news to a lot of uh, federal judges who don't think of themselves as originalists, that, that the Constitution is somehow mandated to be interpreted in an originalist fashion by the Supreme Court. I, I would, it's great news, but, but I think that would be news. <laughs> um, so I, I think at this level of the hearings, we're going to have to really get to the point of saying, OK, you can't pass this off on I'm following precedent or I'm bound to follow precedent, because we all know that the Supreme Court justices aren't bound to follow their own precedent. They they have the opportunity to reconsider that and rethink that. And to simply say, I don't know how, it inter how I would interpret it. I don't know how as a senator, in good faith, you can vote for a judge who's effectively a complete black, black box, no idea what they're going to um, do with the Constitution. We have to have a sense that they understand 
how to interpret it. And you uh, you ideally would want not simply them saying, oh, I, I will interpret it according to the original meaning and et cetera, but be able to articulate what that means, be able to show examples in their prior career that shows that they really do know how to apply that. That's something I would um, expect of certainly any nominee. If, if someone said, well, is this person a good nominee? Uh, you know, when Trump was considering judges, I would want to see not just that they know how to say the right thing, but they actually can show that they've done it in practice. I think that's going to be a challenge for her because, as she said, she really hasn't grappled with those issues and, and has acknowledged that she hasn't thought through them deeply. Look, we know that uh, President Biden wasn't just looking for a black woman to nominate. He was looking for a black woman progressive. And there's lots of legal savvy in the White House. It's difficult to imagine that they've failed to come up with what they wanted. Uh, you look back to 2005 when Joe Biden threatened to filibuster the possible nomination of Janice Rogers Brown, who would have been the first African-American female justice. He threatened to filibuster her on grounds of judicial philosophy. Uh, and, uh, you know, here there's ample reason to believe, um, based on uh, Kataji Brown's Jackson's entire uh, career, her mentors, uh, that, that she is a progressive. And it would be, uh, you know, remarkable for her to demonstrate that she's not. Well, let me let me jump in a little a little bit. So, one, the fact that she was the favorite of groups like Demand Justice, uh, you know, they have to have some inkling that she is indeed a progressive. On the issue of judicial philosophy, I mean, not only did she go to Harvard Law School, she clerked for three federal judges, including Justice Breyer, the justice whom she would replace. Uh, she said last June when she was being elevated to the D.C. Circuit, she's bobbed and weaved is what she's done. She said she didn't have a judicial philosophy per se, which is a remarkable thing for somebody who'd been a sitting judge at that point for uh, for eight years. She then went on to say, well, as a lower court judge, who am I to question the methodology that was employed by the Supreme Court? Well, you know, the Supreme Court as a whole doesn't have a judicial philosophy. It's individual justices that have a judicial philosophy. And now uh, what she's saying is, well, you know, I really can't comment on that because uh, if I'm a sitting Supreme Court justice, uh, this may be part of legal issues that come before uh, the Supreme Court, which is of course silly, because what you what they don't comment on is uh, you know how they view particular questions that the court will be called upon to resolve. Uh, they do not have the court is never going to resolve what is the proper judicial philosophy uh, as a legal question. And in fact, you know many current and past Supreme Court justices have written books and given speeches about their judicial philosophy. Indeed, Justice Breyer had a whole series of debates, which I commend to people to watch on YouTube with Justice Scalia about uh, living constitutionalism versus originalism. She, she has tried to duck this issue and I think that she should be pressed very, very hard uh, to give an answer. I'll add to that uh, and also uh, piggybacking on what, uh, what Ed just said, which is that Joe Biden has talked about how important the concept of unenumerated rights are. He waxes rhapsodic about uh, about the Ninth Amendment, its potential as a, a font of, uh, you know, as a source for unenumerated rights. And he said that his nominee is going to believe in unenumerated rights. Well, if she has a view, presumably because Biden's asked her about it, about unenumerated rights, then certainly she has a judicial philosophy. You know, a lot of people talk about how – and it, it, it can be frustrating. You watch these confirmation processes and there are things that no just judge or a nominee for a justice is going to talk about. If they ask her about specific cases, specific issues coming before the Supreme Court, it's it's appropriate for them to say, I can't I can't discuss this. But they don't just say that and leave it be. They they generally will give an illustration of how they understand the field and they'll – it is absolutely fair game to talk about what is your broad overall approach to the law. And that's something you can go back over the last 
many judicial hearings, and you can see that they're they're perfectly happy to talk about that. It's the specific issues they can't uh, talk about because they can't prejudge a case. I, I just say that we don't need to try to uh, read through dozens of FOIA rulings from her on the district court <laughs> in order to glean her judicial philosophy. It'll be very simple to ask her, um, say, uh, about, about the use of foreign law contemporary foreign law determining the meaning of the Constitution. This is a great proxy issue uh, for constitutional interpretation uh, as a whole. And I would be amazed if she is going to repudiate uh, the position that Stephen Breyer uh, took on this issue. Now, to be sure, uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, in her confirmation hearing, worked very hard to dissemble her, her views on the matter. But uh, you know this 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 is this is going to be a, a a bellwether issue that signals quite a lot, and it's just far fetched to think that uh, that Katanji Brown Jackson is going to have an approach to constitutional and statutory interpretation that Republican senators should find acceptable. So, besides asking about her approach to international law, what are some other questions that senators could ask that would tease out her judicial philosophy? Well, less so in the area of, of constitutional interpretation because she hasn't written a lot in that area. She has written some uh, in that area. So for instance, uh, you know, she said that, that there was a, a, an anti-pandering uh, law in Washington, D.C. And, and some people were – challenged that who were you know, begging basically. Uh, and she said that, you know, that, that that law might very well be unconstitutional and begging is a form of uh, expressive – conduct. Uh, but she hasn't had a, a long history in terms of interpreting the Constitution. She has uh, dealt a lot with administrative law uh, and has also interpreted various uh, statutes. So you can get a sense as to whether she is a textualist or not. She's talked a little bit also about things like separation of powers in the, in the McGahn case, which has gotten a lot of attention, uh, in which she rejected President Trump's invocation of executive privilege and forced Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, to testify uh, before the House Judiciary Committee that was investigating uh, alleged collusion between the Trump administration or Trump and the Trump campaign and Russians in connection with the 2016 election. So you can get hints. You can certainly ask her about anything that she's written before. That's all fair game. Uh, but she does not have a lot of cases in which she's interpreted the Constitution. She had a couple of criminal cases with, where she's interpreted things like the Fourth Amendment, but not a lot. And in, in so many of her rulings, she was indeed constrained by precedent. So I'm not sure that that's going to be a, a very uh, uh, promising uh, field to explore. But there's plenty of room to ask her um, uh, about conversations she's had in recent years about different topics. Look, uh, the Dobbs case, it's been huge uh, for the last uh, six months or so. It's inconceivable that she hasn't had discussions uh, with folks about that. That's fair, entirely fair game to ask her what she's had to say about that. Well, I, let me just add one. On the, on the topic of abortion, she will, of course, not answer. But it's, it's inconceivable to me that she is not pro-abortion. I say that based on one thing, which is she worked on a brief when she was in private practice, an amicus brief that was defending the constitutionality of a Massachusetts law that established a buffer zone around abortions. I cannot imagine that if a partner went into an associate's office and said, what are your views on abortion? And the associate said, I'm pro-life. That the partner would say, you're just the person I want working on that brief. <laughs> I'm assuming it's a matter of conscience. Uh, you know, the associate would say, look, I just don't feel comfortable working on that brief or heck yes, count me in. But John, if I may, I'm not, I'm not um, suggesting that she would be obligated to uh, present uh, her 
legal view on whether Roe was rightly decided right. or should be overturned. Mm-hmm. I think she is obligated to answer questions about what she has said uh, to to others about the Dobbs case in the last uh, several months. And I don't see on what basis she can duck that. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just as if she had given a, a, a talk on that, although that's obviously easier to access. You know, some of the, the comments she made, and again, it's a little hard to get to because she's not going to want to comment on uh, cases going forward, but she she very frequently in her previous hearings dodged a lot of things by just saying, I'm, I'm bound by precedent. One exchange, for example, with Senator Hawley, he asked her about religious freedom in the context of a Christian school board on which she sat. And it was it was kind of telling her response because he, he read some of the mission statement, which included things like the sanctity of life and uh, the, the respect for uh, traditional marriage between one man and one woman. And she kind of ran for the hills. She said, oh, I, I'm, I'm not sure that was, I haven't ever necessarily seen that mission statement. I don't know if it was on there when I was in the board. I don't really agree with everything and uh, people whose boards, uh, on whose boards I sit. But but I, I, I will say that because the Supreme Court has recognized this religious freedom, I, I, I'm bound by Supreme Court precedent. Uh, I, I think that's a little telling, it, it, both in that she was so concerned about her uh, about this school's beliefs, but also uh, that she tied it to Supreme Court precedent, not really, you know, obviously the First Amendment protects religious freedom, and therefore that's something that I would I would stand by. So she's used this deference to precedent in many op- occasions to kind of get out from under things, and that's something that that is not an escape route she should uh, be able to have at this hearing, and I hope the senators recognize that and hold her to that. I'll tell you one question I hope that she's asked, sticking on this Montrose school uh, issue that Kerry just raised. So, you know, to those people who don't know, this was uh, a now defunct uh, Christian school. She was on the board of advisors or trustees or whatever it was, and, and they ended up having a, a statement of principles, and it was things like defending the traditional view of marriage. And she she ran away from that and said, "Oh, I, yes, I served on the school and helped with fundraising, but I was unaware of this this statement." I think she should be asked. You know, someone should read this the statement to her and say, "Look, do you think that somebody who believes this?" Um, should be disqualified from being a judge if she says, "Well, if anyone believes that they shouldn't be a judge, then you know they should vote her down." <laughs> and if she says, yes, "I think that I think that people who believe that uh, uh, are perfectly fine being judges," you know, then anyone who comes in, in a Republican administration and expresses those beliefs, uh, at least from Katanji Brown Jackson, has gotten a pass. And if she says, "No, I don't think that anyone who believes that should be a judge should be, should be reminded that the Constitution provides that there's no religious tests yeah. for judges." Mm-hmm. You know, one other uh, area that she was about and tried to avoid was about court packing. And this is, again, falls into the category of things that judges can comment on because Justice Ginsburg, Justice Breyer have both commented on their opposition to court packing. Some of the groups that are advancing her nomination have been the very same ones who have been the, the most vocal in favor of packing the Supreme Court. And so, you know, that, that's a fair question. This is not a question that's likely to come up before the Supreme Court. We, everyone kind of agrees it's constitutional to change the number of justices. But is this something that, that she would endorse, particularly in, in light of the uh, the groups that have favored her? And, and she, she absolutely is free to comment on it, just as the other justices have. I did want to jump in and ask about a specific issue that might come up at the confirmation hearings. We've heard some in the news about her role sitting on a Harvard board, and there's obviously the Harvard admissions case that will come before the court uh, next term. What do you expect we'll hear about that at her confirmation hearings? Well, I think she'll be asked uh, whether she commits to recuse herself from uh, this case involving Harvard. And I think the recusal question um, would be simple if you substitute Harvard with Bank of America or Coca-Cola. Uh, you know, she was sitting on uh, a, a what Harvard calls a uh, one of its two governing boards uh, at the time that this lawsuit challenging 
an existing policy and continuing policy um, uh, was was pending. Uh, and I think it's a no-brainer if the if the uh, if the party is Bank of America or Coca-Cola, and I don't understand um, how, how uh, she thinks that she could take part in this case. Now she hasn't said that she can, and she actually recused herself from uh, at least one case involving Harvard when she was a district court judge. Uh, so um, perhaps she will commit to recuse. How do you think this confirmation will be different than her two previous ones, or three previous ones, if we include the U.S. Sentencing Commission? <laughs> a lot more people are going to be paying attention <laughs> to this one. I, I, I can't remember the last sentencing commission confirmation process I, uh, I tuned into. <laughs> you know, there's there's a long. I, I think some people have made a lot about the fact that she she did get some Republican votes, three Republican votes in, in her last uh, confirmation that was relatively recent within the last year. Um, but we have to remember it's a very different thing, obviously, to be confirmed to a district court or or a commission or an appellate court to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, I think if you if you want an example, look at Justice Thomas's own confirmation when he was confirmed to the DC circuit, it was he was confirmed by voice vote. Like they didn't even have a roll call vote. No one had to put their name behind their vote. He just was kind of moved on in. Uh, and then you know, obviously, when his Supreme Court hearing came along, things went very differently. And ironically, actually, it was Joe Biden himself, who was Senate Judiciary Committee chair at the time, who right after Thomas was confirmed to the appellate court, took him aside and said, hey, if you're appointed at the Supreme Court, don't don't expect it to go this smoothly, which Thomas was, you know, found kind of chilling because, A, he, he, he just, you know, minutes ago been, <laughs> been put on the appellate court. And B, he thought that was pretty tough of a hearing. They, they, they did kind of go after him more than you would typically see for that era type of confirmation hearing. And uh, and so he thought, well, how, how, how is this going? But it's true. There's a, there's a real difference. And imagine it, it is a higher standard. Just as we were saying, it's you, you're not bound by precedent anymore. There is no backstop of a Supreme Court that can correct uh, erroneous decisions anymore. So it should be a higher standard for uh, this nominee. And, and this is why we're spending going to spend so much more time asking her questions. But I also think the senators need to keep that in mind of this is a higher standard. We're, it's, it's a much more um, there's much more authority with this job. And so the standard uh, should be in, in keeping with that. So, so Joe Biden, who was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time, actually put on the record something along the lines of now, you know, there's a different standard for Supreme Court justices. And if you want to cite Exhibit A for that, I mean, so Joe Biden was part of that voice vote, didn't object to Clarence Thomas getting onto the D.C. Circuit, but he led the charge to try to defeat Clarence Thomas uh, you know, when he was nominated just a year and a half later to the Supreme Court. So how should Republican senators approach uh, this confirmation hearing? Well, I think that they should make uh, judicial philosophy front and center. Uh, the goal here should be to highlight that uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson uh, shares or was certainly not repudiate uh, the left's view of the Constitution as uh, some sort of malleable document that can be twisted and turned to mean whatever the left wants it to mean. Uh, the goal here should be to uh, inflict political costs uh, f f uh, on those um, senators and uh, who support her nomination and, and on the White House. Look, I, I think it's important. I think Ed's right to draw that kind of a, a contrast. I mean, let, let's face it: all fifty Democratic senators are back in Washington. Not a single one of them has voted against any uh, of the judicial nominees that uh, that Joe Biden has sent up to the Hill. So the odds are uh, that she's going to get confirmed. But I think drawing a contrast and saying, you know, look, elections have consequences in terms of the kinds of justices that you get. You elect a Democratic senator or a Democratic Senate. 
this is what you get. You elect a Republican senator and a Republican Senate. This is what you get. Uh, and, you know, we have a, a presidential election in two, two years and we have midterm elections this year. Uh, and, the, and, you know, both the presidency and the balance of control in the Senate are, will be in play. Yeah, and all those elections have consequences. I think it's also important because, you know, we've seen from this president so many times where he presented himself as a moderate and then is governing Mm -hmm. in a very uh, kind of the most radical and progressive way he can. And I think it's important to have this discussion during her confirmation process because if if the Republican senators aren't very clear about this, he'll simply go around continuing to present her as if she's a moderate. Remember, he had a list of of shortlisters that everyone was talking about and by – all accounts, he chose the most radical person on the list. He chose the most progressive person on this list. So one might assume that with a, with such a bare majority, not even a majority, just a, a, that tie, tie vote in the Senate, you might have gone for a more moderate pick. But that was not what he chose. So for the, to the extent that he's going to try to present her as someone who's just right down the middle – that's simply not true, and we need to make sure that we we highlight uh, the the aspects of of her record and her approach to the law uh, that make that clear. One of the questions that I hear from Senate Judiciary staffers is if uh, our senators play nice with. Judge Jackson, will it encourage Democrats to play nice in the future? What do you think? Heck well, no. let's, let's, <laughs> how's that working for you so far? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think if we play by the markets of Queensbury rules that that all of a sudden the next time around they're going to say, "Oh, you were so nice last time. We're going to be nice to your nominee." I just that those days are gone. Well, we should be nice in the sense that the hearing should be conducted in a dignified way. Right. Mm-hmm. There should not be. Uh, smears, below-the-belt attacks, distortions. Uh, you know, you look at the way that, that um, you know, the, the left, uh, say, on Gorsuch, suddenly elevated this frozen trucker case that no one had ever heard of into some, uh, some, some big indictment of him. There should not be uh, a, a, a distortion of her record. This should be a, a dignified uh, debate. Uh, and, and that's true whether or not Democrats um, reciprocate. I think Democrats actually paid a price uh, in the 2018 mm-hmm. um, uh, election for their the, uh, their their behavior on judicial confirmations, uh, and that's. Uh, but you know, I think Republicans will be most effective if they don't stoop to the level that Democrats uh, have stooped to. Yeah, but I, I do think, as I described earlier on, the the deference standard is gone, and it is particularly galling to me to have someone like Joe Biden. Um, you know, potentially appealing to that when he he's the one he not only chaired the Thomas confirmation hearings, which were a complete debacle and a you know media circus, but the Bork hearings. Mm-hmm. I think most people point to that as the real turning point that where we went from a more deference standard of judges to the the, the current model, and it and it's taken Republicans a, a several generations <laughs> almost to to catch up because I think people kept on wanting to say, hey, maybe if we're maybe if we if we just go back to that one, that would be nicer for everyone, right? I'm sorry that the times have, have, have definitively changed. And you can ask Lindsey Graham, who I think is maybe one of the last holdouts for this this philosophy. And remember his impassioned speech during the Kavanaugh hearings. Well, I voted for Sotomayor. I voted for Kagan. Why are you guys not reciprocating? Um, at, at a certain point, you know, fool me once, shame, shame on you. <laughs> fool me twice, shame on me. And I think it, it's been it's been tried and it's very clear that the Democrats are not interested in reciprocating on a return to the deference standard. And I think there actually is a lot to be said for remembering that these are – this isn't just a, uh, you know, a let's play nice and, and, and politicians all are just politicians working with each other and playing footsie under the table. There actually are real 
significant differences between different approaches to the Constitution in today's world. The, 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 the division is very stark. And so I think I think senators who themselves take an oath to uphold the Constitution have to keep that in mind and recognize that um, simply passing through anyone who comes along, even if they have a judicial philosophy that would really do violence to our founding document, uh, that isn't in keeping with their own oath. On Biden's record as a senator, let me add that he also voted against Chief Justice Roberts in 2005, Mm -hmm. not only voted against, but sought to filibuster Samuel Alito in 2006. So, uh, yeah, the the, the model of deferring to the president and and looking narrowly at at so-called objective qualifications that exclude judicial philosophy is dead and gone. Uh, it's not going to be able to be revived so long as we have this sharp divide on judicial philosophy that we have. And uh, any Republican senator who invokes that is, uh, is, is dreaming. Assuming that Judge Jackson is confirmed to the court, uh, do you have any idea who might take her place on the D.C. Circuit? You know, some people have talked about some of those other shortlisters like Judge Childs, for well, example. Well, she's already nominated to the this D.C. Is, well, that, Circuit. No, that's right. But, uh, you know, potentially Justice Kruger, I, I, who, who knows? Yeah, I, I think – yeah, look, the, the, Joe Biden tried to get Leandra Kruger uh, to come to Washington, asked her twice uh, to be the solicitor general. She turned it uh, She turned it down. But, but this is lifetime. Yeah, no, no. I was about to say it. But, but now a lifetime tenured position on the D.C. Circuit and you're thinking I might be next mm-hmm. to be on the Supreme Court. I think that her calculus may change mm-hmm. and I would, I would expect that she would be an odds-on favorite to be the nominee. And then now they will resume the confirmation hearing for Michelle Childs uh, to you know, be on the D.C. Circuit. So they may both end up there. Yeah, well, at the risk of going into the weeds, there was a 10-month uh, behind-the-scenes battle over the uh, David Tatel vacancy that right. ultimately led just before Christmas to the nomination of Michelle Childs. I think that um, a runner-up uh, in that battle is very likely to be the nominee. My own guess is that Leandra Kruger is not interested in, in, in moving her, her family uh, out out to D.C. and, and, and uh, leaving the California Supreme Court for this. Maybe I'll be uh, shown to be wrong. Uh, look, um, Hispanics have, have gotten the uh, short end of the stick uh, on Biden's uh, 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 diversity nominations, uh, and I think um, they'll be looking hard, um, you know, to actually uh, win one of these nominations. So, assuming that uh, Judge Jackson is confirmed at the end of all of this, how do you think she changes the Supreme Court, if at all? You know, I think some people make a lot of the oh, well, this is just a you know Democrat nominee for a Democrat nominee. It's a liberal for a liberal, so you know, no big. No big deal on the change there. But I think that overlooks, first of all, some of the distinctions of of Justice Breyer's own temperament and and his style of judging, which was much more pragmatic than, say, you know, a, a Sotomayor or a Ginsburg on the bench. So of the liberal members of the court, he was the one that was much more likely to come to some, uh, you know, kind of middle ground with the conservative members of the bench. I doubt that Jackson is going to fill that role. So to the extent that, you know, at least in hopefully dissent, uh, that may push things farther uh, to the left on the court. Um, You know, we're going to see fewer hypotheticals, uh, which which is I'll sort of miss. They were they were they were very confusing, I think, sometimes for the advocates, but but kind of a fun feature of of Justice Breyer. But I think we also and and this also, you know, when people say, well, let's let's not focus on this too much. They're they're in the minority. Remember, Justice Thomas was in the minority when he 
by in a dramatic minority, a minority of like two, when he first came on the bench. And now he's the intellectual leader and heavyweight on the court. So we don't really know what the future will hold. I hope that the, that the American people's, I think, desire to have originalist justices will continue to push uh, that forward and the interest there. But, I, you know, we, we can't predict that. So, you know. So one thing I think that makes it really tough to answer that question is that there have been long periods of time of years where there were no change in personnel on the court. And if you ended up getting one change, all of a sudden you could discern mm-hmm. a difference. There have been three new justices in the last five years. So it's hard <laughs> to know what the marginal change will be of a fourth uh, new justice uh, on the court. But you know, yeah, time All the variables tell. are changing at once. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you all so much for taking the time uh, to join us today. We really appreciate it, and uh, we hope to have you all back again in the future. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's it for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we would appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.